You're listening to the Founder Coach Podcast, a show that investigates what it really means to be the CEO of a fast-growing tech company. My name's Dave Bailey, and I coach founders that raise capital from the world's top venture funds to fuel their business. And I'm sitting down with CEOs to talk about their experiences, the challenges they face, and the lessons they've learned, or are learning right now. Hello, founders and friends. Welcome to the 10th episode of the Founder Coach Podcast. It's March 30th, 2021, and it was just six months ago when we recorded the very first episode with Chris Edson from Second Nature. And since then, we've had some amazingly open and thought-provoking conversations with tech CEOs who have genuinely worn their heart on their sleeves and shown us the real challenges they're facing as they scale their businesses. Now, this episode is a little different because rather than interview a CEO, I wanted to share some of the most impactful moments from the first episodes along with some thought-provoking questions for you as a CEO or as a startup founder to work through. So let's kick off with a clip from Chris Edson, CEO of Second Nature. We'd been talking about a challenge that every product founder knows all too well. It's the challenge of letting go of the details. Here's the clip. Do you have a story which illustrates the need to step away from the details? Yeah, I think I think recently our head of engineering came to me and I still occasionally would code up kind of features, right? So for a CEO of a company that's getting towards 100 people, there are obviously some dragons there if that's going to be our approach. And our head of engineering came to me saying, look, you, you probably need to stop doing this because it actually has a few unintended consequences on the rest of the team. But that's a very difficult thing for me to step away from. It's something that actually brings me joy to be able to, to bring features to, to users. It helps me feel connected to the product. But ultimately, it's probably not the best thing for the future of the company that I'm still coding away features that might end up breaking in production or end up actually annoying the rest of the engineering team. What went through your mind when your engineering manager gave you this feedback? What did he say to yourself? The story I probably told myself is, why do you hate me, <laughs> head of engineering? How can you not see the value that I'm bringing here. You know, I'm, I'm clearly, I'm building features that users are getting value out of. Like, how is that not, how is that not obvious? Mm -hmm. How can you not see that? Well, a lot of people listening to this will be nodding their heads being like, yeah, I mean, what you were doing was valuable. So what's the other way of looking at this? Well, the interesting insight is that your influence's CEO is unavoidable sometimes. So regardless of if you have the best culture in the world, if you have a team that really can tell you no, that can give you feedback, all of those things being true, there is still a kind of unavoidable way in which people will find it difficult to challenge you. Mm -hmm. And put it this way, if I would build a feature, the engineering team would have some difficulty challenging that and giving feedback on it. It ended up being disempowering to the engineering team because they would think, well, say it broke. They would be like, well, I'm not going to fix it. That was Chris's code. And Chris just went and did that of his own volition. So th those different facets came in that it actually ended up decreasing accountability within the engineering team. Having stuff not break, engineering team, this is your responsibility. Let me play that back because that's interesting. So by contributing to the engineering team, you were actually reducing their own accountability to the output. Yes, exactly. Which is really interesting. As an engineer, you can look at it from one perspective, which is, but you're contributing productive code. You're building a feature. 
it's like that can have some other really interesting knock-on impacts that I just wasn't aware of at all. What a powerful message from Chris there. And if you're a builder like Chris, and I definitely am myself, you know that building doesn't feel like work. It feels more like play. So it's a little heartbreaking to find out that as the CEO, at some point, your involvement can actually generate second order consequences in the team. And it is better that you step out of the details. So here are some questions for you as a CEO or startup leader. Have you found that your involvement can get in the way of your team's ownership? And then which systems of delegation and accountability do you need in place to successfully let go? All right, so some big questions there. And of course, holding people accountable for mistakes feels very uncomfortable, not just for you, but for the team too. So how do you cultivate that resilience that you need to face these tough conversations? Well, as it happens, I talked about resilience with Paul Ford, the CEO of ASIN, who is also an ex-military officer. And Paul shares some golden insights about building a culture of resilience. So check it out. What were the exercises and training that you did in the army that you think really helped you stay resilient in the face of adversity? Firstly, they select for it. You know, the whole selection process is very intense over many, many days. And so you do find that the peer group that you end up at Sandhurst with is a naturally resilient bunch. But in terms of the training, it's very much about breaking you down and rebuilding you back up. And that's by being very busy, you know, lots of sleep deprivation, where you find out about yourself and you find out about your peers, because at that point, you're completely stripped down. You can't hide anything when you haven't slept for three, four days. And so that gives you that insight into how do I behave when things start to go wrong? And that allows you to ensure that you do the right things in those moments. And I think also you realize that failure is a natural process. It happens to everyone. It happens all the time. And it's how you react to that, how you learn from that. And you get to be able to kind of ride that through. And it's not about what just went wrong. It's about what I can do about that going forward. So I can totally see that people who are less resilient, they're going to select themselves out. You also mentioned once you get into the training, there's a certain level of sleep deprivation or a certain level of stress that you, you get put through. How does that play out in startups? The thing with a startup is you're operating with imperfect information. You've got an aim, you've got an ambition. That's very much like a military mission in a way. The military doesn't tell you precisely how to do everything. They give you a, this is broadly how you should do it, and it's for you to interpret. And then along the way, things go wrong. So in a startup, things go wrong all the time, whether that's to the business itself, the people, the product. You have to kind of find feedback loops because if you let all of those failures and those learning moments build up on you, it, it can be easy for that to overwhelm you. And actually, the military experience is one where you absorb that and you ride through it. And you know that it's your job as the leader to be the face of that, to take that forward. And it doesn't mean that you don't show vulnerability to the team, but you are the one that keeps the team going, keeps them on track. Mm. Yeah, because when I think military, I think command and control, do as you're told. Is that, is that fair? No, so that's a common misconception. And I think it's because the military has a explicit rank structure, people do think someone tells someone who tells someone who tells someone. And actually, it isn't like that at all. I mean, clearly, there is a rank structure. But in an operational situation, wars and, and so on are, are chaos. 
And so the concept of empowerment is entirely built into the model. And it's just called mission command. So you tell people what you want to achieve, not how to do it, because they could be cut off, no communications, can't talk to anyone, and they have to use their initiative. What I love here is that Paul describes resilience in terms of behaviors, right? He says it's taking setbacks as part of the course, learning from them, ideally through feedback loops, and then moving forward. And he also hints at a couple of ways that leaders can encourage resilience. The first way is to select for it. It's hard to change behaviors and mindsets. So the easiest way to build resilience in your team or encourage any new behavior is actually to hire in people who already exhibit that behavior. And then the other way is to build feedback loops that encourage people to learn. And one of the most powerful ways to do that is actually just to ask the question, what did you learn? And this is my challenge for you. I challenge you to prompt one of your team members to reflect by asking them the question, what did you learn? See what happens. And just imagine what would happen if you repeat this question again and again, because mistakes are natural and a growth mindset is needed to stay resilient. Now, the question that follows is, how do you want your team to react to each other's mistakes? Well, I talked about this with Jacob Verm, the CEO of EduMe. So have a listen to this. We talk a lot about in startups, the inevitability of making mistakes. And I almost feel there's an implicit assumption that, that we're talking about the team, but actually it, it absolutely goes for founders too. Hmm. How do you build a leadership team that's tolerant, not just of each other's mistakes, but also of the CEO's mistakes too. I think you need mature intellects to do that, where you can look at each other as just people. Right. And not like the CEO and, and, and no one can say anything or talk to them. And it's also on the CEO to show vulnerability, fessing up to mistakes. Absolutely. What is vulnerability? It is having a grip on your own weaknesses and being able to talk about them openly mm. and maturity, which I think is the ability to see the nuance between the extremes is really critical as you're scaling a team. One thing about vulnerability, I just feel I had to say too, is it feels like there's this inherent conflict between showing vulnerability and shielding the team or right. that's very often how it feels like, right? You don't right. want to talk about like you're about to run out of money or you made mistakes and maybe it's going to make it worse. And like, who is going to feel better? Well, maybe it would make me feel better, but what about everyone else on the team? It's going to make them feel worse. When they feel worse, they're going to do a worse job. That's going to reduce the chance of success. Right. So I think very, very, very often you end up just filtering and shielding the team, including... Uh, your direct reports from seeing too much, feeling too much, so they can stay focused and you just like try to take it on your own shoulders. And that's where I think the conflict comes in with the vulnerability yeah. because it's almost like once you start opening up or showing cracks, you're afraid the whole thing will kind of crumble. Well, I, I had a great piece of advice from a yoga instructor on this. The question was, how much can you be vulnerable and share in front of the class? And you can only share what you've already processed. Mm. What you don't want to do is to use the class as your therapy session yeah, and just yeah. talk about it. The perfect match is to pair vulnerability with vision. Mm. So vulnerability is, I don't know, I'm struggling and I need your help. But vision is, this is where we're trying to get to. And here's why we really need to do this. Mm. 
without the direction piece, all you're left with is, hey, I, I don't know what we're doing, mm. which is concerning. Mm. So I think you've always got to have that vision of like, this is where we're going, but this is where we're trying to get to. What an amazing conversation I had with Jacob. I thought the two points about vulnerability and maturity were spot on. Vulnerability is the willingness to be open about mistakes and maturity is the ability to deal with nuance. And this is a definition of maturity that I lifted from Mark Manson's incredible book, Everything is F***ed, which despite its provocative title is a book I highly recommend reading. So here's my question for you. How much space do you make for your leadership team to be vulnerable? Because, of course, if as the leader, you don't make space for it, it's probably not going to happen. Now, the other thing that, as a leader, you have to make space for is managing your own stress and well-being. I spoke with Jack Tang, CEO of Urban, about just this topic. So listen to his approach. Have you developed any routines or practices that help you manage the stress? For me, the top three things are basically, one, get definitely eight hours of sleep every day. Mm. For me, if I don't get eight hours, I just don't feel that I've been able to repair the prior day damages. <laughs> so for me, it's like super important. Number two is environmental. So mm. for me, I live 10 minutes walk away from our offices in South Bank, central London. So naturally, you're living in a shoe cupboard. I tend to try to take myself out of London as often as I can mm. just to kind of recharge from an environmental perspective. And the third thing? Yeah, and the third thing for me, like what you mentioned earlier, I regularly have massages. I see it as like a body reset, particularly during stressful times. So fundraising, for example, when you're facing a, a imminent cliff to bankruptcy <laughs> and getting rejected multiple times every day it's a very stressful period for any founders and during those times my usage frequency increases quite exponentially just detach from my phone and not getting a notification or an urgent message for even 60 minutes i feel re-energized after each treatment and i feel that i've reset my body so i think those three things for me work really well in combination and that's how I remain well and sane and, and carry on. That was Jack Tang there sharing how he manages stress. Did you notice how he plugged his business Urban, which of course lets you book massages? Uh, I have used it. I have to say it was pretty awesome. The point here is that the way that you or a team member deal with stress might be very different to Jack, right? Maybe you need some quiet time with a book or to spend some time with friends or I don't know, to drink green juices. And so it turns out that as a leader, one of the kindest things that you can do to help a team member who is in need is to ask them how they prefer to manage their stress and then hold them accountable to follow through. And that's what I'm going to do for you right now. I want to ask you, what activities do you know reduce your stress? And are you actually doing them? If you're not doing them, well, you know what to do. Well, that sounds like a good place to take a break. I'll be coming back with some more founder insights in two texts. Alex, thanks so much for jumping on the call. You are the CEO of StepSize. In a sentence, what does StepSize do? StepSize is an issue tracker that lives in the code editor and helps engineering teams fight technical debt. 
Now you recently took the Clarity program. What motivated you to take Clarity? Well, I'd collected loads of user feedback on our product and positioning and was a few months away from starting to fundraise again. And I wanted to take all our lessons and integrate them into a new narrative for step size of the company, but also the product. Got it. Now, could you share some of your key takeaways from doing the program? I loved working with storytelling templates, having every aspect of step size written down into a short paragraph with clear sections to tweak for every iteration was hugely helpful in clarifying my thinking. On top of that, it was extremely helpful to bounce ideas and run our work past the community of founders who were also working through the program. I can't tell you how many great ideas I picked up from them. And is there anything you want people who are considering Clarity to know? Just do it. As a founder, I would recommend Clarity to any startup founder and CEO looking for a framework that they can use to clarify and constantly improve their company's narrative over its lifetime. My cohort included founders at very different company stages, and they all left with major breakthroughs. That is awesome. Thank you so much, Alex. If you want to learn about how StepSize can help you with your tech debt, why don't you visit StepSize.com? And if you want to learn about what Clarity can do for your company, visit DaveBailey.com, click the links to Clarity, and get in touch. I would love to hear from you. Now, let's get back to this amazing episode. All right, welcome back to the 10th episode of The Founder Coach. We're celebrating the small wins here by going through some of the most insightful moments on the podcast so far. And this next clip is one of my favorites. I was speaking with Anastasia Leng, CEO of CreativeX, about how to create a culture where people are willing to challenge the CEO. Have a listen. What are the challenges of having a culture of constructive dissent? I can see the intellectual appeal, but what's the reality like? The reality is that of all the values we have, that is the one we think we need to work on a lot more because mm. I felt it was very important to put this one in writing as almost a way of giving people permission to disagree with the CEO. And that mm. is because at the end of the day, I am just another person who is right as often as I am wrong. And so what I'm really paranoid about as a founder is letting bad ideas squeeze through because someone is too polite or we've created a culture where they don't feel like they can disagree. So the challenge we have is, especially people who are starting out in their career, their perception is you cannot disagree with the CEO or you cannot yeah. disagree with your manager. And that is categorically untrue, but I don't think we've quite found the right way to really demonstrate that. And you know, in, in fairness, the people that get promoted the fastest are those people who are best at telling me the things I don't want to hear. Yeah. Because I think if you surround yourself with those people, then they will slowly eradicate your blind spots. I remember my old manager at Google said, your quirks in your 20s become your calling cards in your 30s because no one tells mm. you that these are, <laughs> these are sort of the behaviors you have that actually piss a lot of yeah. people off. So it's a really challenging value because it can go against the way people were raised and taught to behave I think that's especially something we've seen among our UK team who are more polite than our American team. And I think that can especially be true among females for whom there is sort of a long pattern of rewarding conflict avoidance. Yeah. And yeah. so how you break that is not something we figured out, but it's something we do actively talk about. Yeah. What have you tried in order to make it a more normal behavior in the company? Someone on my team has been very good at this. So we, we hired a head of operations from Uber and Amazon. And one of the behaviors that he's tried to 
channel is having sort of an assigned devil's advocate in the meeting. And that's been really good. And he's sort of taking that on himself where he will publicly challenge me all the time and give others permission to do so. But I think because he and I have such a good relationship and he's the fastest person we've promoted, I think, in the history of the company. So what we're trying to do is build sort of that Pavlovian feedback loop that, Mm. look, don't disagree to be contrarian, right? That's not the point of this. But if you see something that could be better, say it because we try and show that we reward that behavior. Well, it's so funny you mentioned that because just as you were talking about constructive dissent, what was going through my mind is a couple of years back, maybe it was last year, I met a founder who did something almost exactly what you're describing, but they labeled it as devil's avocado. I've always remembered that because it's impossible not to smile a little bit Mm -hmm. when you hear devil's avocado. Mm -hmm. And it brings a little bit of lightness and humor to an otherwise a potential conflict situation. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. One of the other things that I've done around this, and I've, I've done this for the last couple of years, I ask my chairman to get reviews of me from the board, as well as a selection of employees across the company, my direct reports, as well as my non-direct reports. And then I share that review with the entire company, which is very wow. critical about, you know, here are some things that I'm doing well, and here are a bunch of things that I am not doing well, right? Either from the board's perception or, or our team's perception, and make commitments about things I'm going to do better at. One of the reasons that I do that is, A, it's accountability for me. And I, I think sometimes as a CEO, in the perception is you don't report to anyone, but I think really you report to everyone. But the other reason I do that is to really try and instill the belief that I am not above criticism. Here's a bunch of criticism of me, right? So I am as flawed as anyone else to try and make sure that the directionality of feedback flows both ways. Oh my God, what amazing insights there when it comes to creating an intellectually honest culture that can deal with challenge, something we're all trying to aspire to. Now, Anastasia is very open about her weaknesses, so much so that she actually commissions a critical review from her chairman to share with the team on a regular basis. And notice how strong she comes off as a leader here. What a great example of vulnerability as a strength. And so my question for you is, are you courageous enough to share your performance review with your teammates? Because sometimes you forget that your teammates are there to support you, just as you're there to support them. Now, when I spoke with Ben Stevenson, the CEO of Impala, we spoke about why it's critical to think through hard challenges as a team. Check out what Ben has to say. If you think back to the last six months, what for you has been one of the most significant learnings as a CEO? One of the most significant learnings that I've had has been that there are very few cultural problems that can't be and shouldn't be addressed by having a conversation with your team. When you come from like a seed stage company where there's like 15 of you and you notice some problem, right? Maybe you notice that people are not welcoming new employees, right? Your like instinct is, I'm going to tell people that this is wrong and that they need to change their behavior. And we're going to put in a process that says every new person has to have 20 minutes in their first week with everyone else in the company. Do you know what I mean? But ultimately, it should be a conversation rather than a top-down diktat. I'm the CEO of a travel company, and I've just been through a global pandemic when no one was traveling. There's nothing quite as wartime as that. And I'm honestly telling you that if you have a top-performing team and not just a pack of idiots, then having continuous open conversations about the challenges you face 
not as like a big hold hands, kumbaya, like town hall meeting, but concentrically in your senior leadership team, in those management teams, and in those individual teams, having those conversations and then crossing those boundaries is absolutely vital. Great to hear a story about how you learned that. A really good example of this is how we communicated two separate issues that we had. The first one, closer to the beginning of the pandemic, we were changing the organization to deal with putting our more chips behind a, a new bet and siloing our existing product. Now, like I'm sure had read like the Ben Horowitz wartime CEO blog post. And I was like, ah, oh, you know, like I've got to be like a strong leader and I will tell people this is how it's going to happen. And I wasn't like quite like that. But the way that we communicated this change was quite bad, right? It was like, well, like, we're going to do this. Good luck. And, you know, let's chat about it on Monday, right? Which is like a bad way to do it. What about that was bad? You have to then spend quite a long time getting people on site, right? Like you have to have lots of individual conversations about why this is a good thing. And what's inherently bad about this is that you aren't asking people to have input on the work that they're doing or, or the environment in which they work. So if you're just telling someone, go and do this, they're not a knowledge worker anymore, right? Like they're just being told what to do and that's just demotivating to them. Mm. And so the flip side of this is later on in the year, we had a question around whether or not we were confusing being a company that was highly empathetic and highly understanding of its employees with like, let's just be super nice to everyone all the time. And my instinct here was like, I'm going to write a blog post and it's going to be so intelligent and I'm going to be so articulate and everyone is going to read it. And then they will like agree with me because I wrote a blog post and sort of realizing what had happened earlier in the year, I took a different approach. So I was like, okay, well, I will have this conversation with the senior leadership team. We'll run through it for a couple of weeks and see where we come out, make sure we're all on the same page about what we're actually talking about here. And then they will discuss it with their teams and, and so forth and so on. And actually what happens when you do that, first of all, all the stuff that I mentioned earlier, which is like people feel that they have a bunch of input into something. Additionally, though, it's like a product. You trial your point of view, you get input on it, you change it, you adapt it. And that series of conversations makes the outcome much better. And, and what we actually learned was that once you remove the friction of, I'm telling you to do something, please now do it, and replaced it with like, okay, well, I, you know, let's all like have a conversation about this area. You actually find that most people anyway are aligned, right? Most people agree with you. They're like, oh shit, thanks. We've been trying to have that conversation for a while. There just hasn't been the forum. So that would be my biggest learning over the past six months. I just love how Ben shares these two stories, one in which he made a decision and sort of pushed it on the team, and the other where he leads a discussion to get his leaders' input first. And when you do that, if you have mature leaders, you often find you're more aligned than you think. So big thanks to Ben for sharing that insight. Now, one of the most common questions that I'm asked from CEOs is what does a good chief of staff actually do? And so I asked Rebecca Kelly, the CEO of Venue Scanner, about exactly this. And here's what Rebecca had to say about Lizzie Patterson, her chief of staff. When did you decide to bring on a chief of staff and what do they do? It was probably two years ago that we brought her on. We decided to bring in the chief of staff role because there were a lot of areas that didn't necessarily fall into a very clear spec. It wasn't sales, it wasn't operations, it wasn't finance. There were kind of a lot of different areas across the business that we felt like were slipping away and not being handled, but were, were really important. And then there was one of the core things was actually around recruitment and culture. So that was probably the most fundamental part to start with. 
she's helped all of the recruitment around building the team from I think seven to 34 was about the stage. And we, we sort of more clearly defined all of our values and then really like operationalized parts of the culture more. So for example, we have a channel on Slack called the values hustle channel where people would post examples of when someone had done something great or within the values and keeping the momentum live. And then she ended up doing a lot around communications across the business. So like anytime there was a meeting, that was written up and sent round. The strategy and documentation's clear, which often gets lost once the team starts getting bigger. So really just like bridging the gaps and making sure that everyone was on the same page and goals were aligned. Setting up OKRs about 18 months ago, which made quite a big difference to the operational side of the business as well. And what was it like for you to bring on a chief of staff? Yeah, it was amazingly helpful for me. A lot of their role is to support you holistically rather than in a specific role took a lot of weight off my shoulders and almost I had somebody to soundboard decisions off have a gauge of how the team was feeling where we had resource gaps I think often I felt like I wasn't always fully aware of exactly what needed to be done where and she really like bridged that gap between what was going on in the team yeah it was a huge support and helped me sleep at night better yeah what are the key qualities that make for a good chief of staff? I think the relationship with the CEO is really the most critical thing. There's got to be a very high level of trust. So I implicitly trust my chief of staff. And that's definitely the thing that makes the role most successful from my perspective. Being organized, being very open in communication that you know that they'll candidly tell you whatever needs to be said with no barriers, which no one else in the company might do. And being able to build the relationships with the rest of the team at the right level as well. So they also need to implicitly trust her or him to be able to have that information flow across the business. And then in terms of actual hard skills and, and background, I think it really varies. I mean, I've spoken to people who have got chief of staffs who are from blue chip consultancies who are like, amazing at spreadsheets and pitch decks etc and then some people who have come out of recruitment hr and some people who have come into the company as an intern or out of university and developed into that role so it depends on where your weaknesses are as a ceo and where you need someone to help or support i think some amazing tips there on where to find chiefs of staff what they do and what makes them successful and I think the bottom line is that a chief of staff is there to support the CEO and hold the CEO agenda. And it can provide you as CEO with extra leverage, which becomes more and more valuable as your business grows. Now, I've noticed that a common reason that stops more successful CEOs of growing tech companies hire of chief of staff is actually guilt, that they shouldn't need that extra support and that it somehow demonstrated a failure of them in their role. I was talking about the disabling narratives that come up for CEOs with Will Reed, CEO of Sideways 6. And here's what happened. What are some of the other reframes that have been useful for you in terms of reducing the anxiety of being the CEO? So much of this boils down to the emotional side of things and being driven by base level emotions of like fear or excitement something that I've worked on is just my own self-compassion really and starting to find ways to be more compassionate towards myself to give myself a little bit more room 
before getting annoyed or piling more pressure. Well, why haven't we done that? Why haven't I done that? And and I think where that's come from is realizing how much we have done. And that leads to a little bit more self-compassion, which leads to reduction in anxiety because just through the exercise of like self-reflection, I have improved. And if I've improved a tiny bit each day, then I've improved quite a lot since we started things. As I think about this wartime, peacetime thing, in peacetime, I think I need to have that lightness in how I carry myself. I need to find it exciting. I need to find it fun. It's more like, oh, what if? It's imagining things and, and, and experimenting with them and working out if that takes us closer to bringing more ideas to life. Yeah, there are these narratives that we tell ourselves that just aren't true. Like, you know, I'm a bad CEO or mm. you know, this is everything is futile. I'm going to make the wrong decisions and so forth. There's something about being in a wartime where some of those narratives are crowded out by the chaos around you, right? You have no time for these narratives, but they seem to pop up when it is a bit more peaceful, right? Mm. And there's one exercise that I've run with many clients where if we can hear that guilty or fearful or shameful voice, I just say, what's the voice saying to you? You'd, mm. you'd be shocked at what comes out of people's mouths. Like, I'm a bad person. People think I'm doing my job poorly. I haven't done anything important. Just an amazing, rich dialogue of bad self-talk. Oh, that's crazy, yeah. And then the last part of the exercise is to say, well, what would kind of a neutral third party who cares about you say about the situation? Like, actually, I'm doing the best I can. I really take this seriously. I try to look after the business. And the interesting part is our brain is manufacturing all of that. Mm. It's coming from the same brain. Yeah. And so I think your focus on self-compassion is incredibly profound. And maybe that's you know something to think about with peacetime is that's when maybe you have to exercise that self-compassion the most. Absolutely. As I say, I've got pretty obsessed with journaling over the last few years. Now, if you told me seven years ago that I would be writing an affirmation every morning, I would have... Um, You'd be like, stop going to Tony Robbins seminars. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so for me, an affirmation is not, you are going to rule the world and everything you touch will ever turn to gold. Right. It turns out for me to be much more along the lines of, you are deserving of happiness, as is everyone else. And that kind of loving kindness towards myself. And it's very neutral. It's yeah. like you say, you're not saying oh, you're going to own a Ferrari and be a rich yeah, person. Yeah. It's, it's actually what a neutral person who cares about you would say. Yeah. And then at the end of the day, I'll write down something I'm, I'm proudest of. Where that becomes most useful mm -hmm. is on a day when I feel all that negative self-talk that you've just talked about. You're a rubbish CEO, like you're going to get found out, that type of stuff. And then often you'll end up writing a few things. And, and that's been really helpful on the self-compassion side of things. There you go. Self-compassion. Be kind to yourself. You know, building a business isn't easy. And we're often our own biggest critic. So if you resonate with this, maybe you can try journaling, get it out on paper, capture some of those disabling narratives. And remember, don't believe everything you think. Just because your brain is producing these narratives doesn't mean that they're true. Well, I'd just like to really thank all the guests that have come on the podcast so far. We wouldn't have had any of these insights had you not come on the show. And I am so excited about the guests that we have lined up for you. I would love to get your feedback on the show. So just email me on dave at dave-bailey.com or tweet me at Dave Superman on the Twitter and tell me what makes you listen to the podcast. I would love to hear from you. And the other request I have, if you're willing, is could you write me a review on Apple Podcasts? That would really help me grow this podcast and allow more CEOs to show their vulnerable side, which seems to be where all the magic happens. And until then, I wish you an amazing bank holiday and I'll catch you soon.